It is I, Jacob Marley. Are you there? Are you? Hang on. Hold. Where's Scrooge? Grant, is that you? It's Rachel, in the booth. Where's Adrian? Where's Hal? Is Philip here? Where is everyone? Where are our patrons? It's 7.30 on a Friday night. Why are the seats all empty? Grant, are you kidding me? It's 2020. Where have you been? I don't know. The last thing I remember is nodding off during a Zoom meeting in April. And before I knew it, it's Christmas. Well, wake up. We're not doing a Christmas carol this year. What? Well, why am I in costume? Why do I have all this ghost makeup on? I'm sure nobody told you to do that. Well, are we doing anything this year? It's Christmas. We're doing a radio variety show. You're supposed like to- Like It's a Wonderful Life, a live radio play, like Over the Back Fence. And you're supposed and to- And people will listen from home. Grant, they're listening right now. You're supposed to welcome them. Oh. Can I at least do it as Jacob Marley? <sighs> if you must. Cue sound. <laughs> Welcome, one and all, to a ghoulish holiday show with scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. Grant! Oh, fine. Coming to you live from the Commonweal in Lanesboro, Minnesota, welcome to our 2020 holiday radio show, A Driftless Christmas. Featuring the talent of resident ensemble members, Josiah, Elizabeth, Hal, Jackie, Philip, Brad, Lizzie, David, and Rachel. We got some skits for you, radio bits too. We'll share some monologues about life and eggnog. Get masks for merriment, bring grievances to vent, help heal your listlessness. Welcome to A Driftless Christmas, stories from the borough, it is what we bring to you. Happy Driftless Christmas to you. Hey everyone, it's so good to see you. Nice polka dots, Elizabeth. Polka dot? A polka bear? Rachel, hope you brought enough Christmas cookies for all of us. So when this podcast ends, we share a link with friends. It's one of our only wishes to share a Driftless Christmas. Stories from the borough is what we bring to you. Happy Driftless Christmas to you. Happy Driftless Christmas to you. Driftless. Having no aim or purpose. Being without purpose. Also, the region in the upper Midwest in which we inhabit. Not where we're all from. We weren't always driftless. But where we are now. I'd like to invite you to take a few breaths with us before we begin. I invite you to notice what's around you. Clock. Ticking in the background, snow falling silently outside. A muffled phone conversation in the next room, chipped wood in the red floorboards. 
ripped up fabric on the armchair, the smell of cider and cloves on the kitchen stove, kitchen window fogging up. Wind whips around the house. Cobwebs on the ceiling that need dusting. Embers in the fireplace that need stoking. Why is it so hard to notice things? Holiday cards strewn across the coffee table. The ones with glitter shimmer in the light from the fireplace. House creaks. Thin layer of dust on the bookshelf. Maybe there's an art to it, like when you're at peace. It's rare, but not impossible. And you can actually see things and hear them and smell them. And they bring you contentment. Content. Content. Hmm. A robin sits outside the little window, just watching. Pictures on the walls creating shadows. A neglected houseplant wilting. Church bell sounds off in the distance. An itch on my nose. What a gift it is to notice things. And here's a gift for you. Dave and the Eggnog. I find myself alongside my father-in-law, Dave, scouring Council Bluffs, Iowa, and the better part of Omaha, Nebraska, in search of eggnog. I love eggnog. My wife's family loves eggnog. And when dealing with inherited family, sometimes you really gotta celebrate the little things. We needed it so my wife, Rachel, and I could make our traditional offering to the holiday feast, brandy nog. It's a very simple recipe. Mix one part brandy and one part eggnog and drink. Uncomplicated and alcoholic, which I found is a good combination when spending holidays at the in-laws. Dave and I are getting ready to go. I make eye contact with Rachel across the room, the kind a husband makes, the kind that says, please come with me. Be the buffer between me and your dad so that our car ride won't be long and silent. She sends me the look back, the kind a wife makes that says, no, I'm making cookies with my mother. Grow a pair and go make small talk with my father. Also hurry back because I want to have eggnog with these cookies. I enjoy so few things around the holidays, but eggnog and freshly baked cookies is one of them. Don't screw this up for me, husband. She's very good at communicating that way. I want it to be known, it's not that I have a problem with Dave. It's just that small talk has never been our strong suit. We'd both be the strong, silent type if I put on a little more muscle and stayed quiet more often. Father and son-in-laws are never good at this sort of thing, but I would say I'm particularly bad. When I'm alone in a room with Dave, if there's not a screen playing a movie or a sports game, my tongue feels all rubbery, like an overcooked egg, bouncing all over the place. Faced with no alternatives, Dave and I ride off alone together. Usually I come up with some tidbits beforehand to help with the silences. Scores of recent games, a joke or two, things like that. This time, I was unprepared. The first store was completely out of eggnog. The second store was too. And so I say, maybe we should just call it a day. Dave gives me a look and says, Don't you want to keep looking? 
I think of all the coaches of my youth. What are you, a quitter? Sometimes, yes. Yes, I am. But under that unyielding stare, I cave. No, yeah, yeah let's, uh, let's, let's keep going. Dave grunts. We press on. I try my hand at small talk. I flail around for a topic. Uh, eggnog! I read an article before this Christmas. What did it say? What did it say? I start easy and say, you know, I read this article that said there are actually very little eggs in eggnog. Dave stares at the road. Oh, boy. Uh, did it say something else? Something about curing congestion, alleviating red eyes, and increasing libido? I think about mentioning the libido thing to Dave, but since I'm married to his daughter, I decide against it. He may be a pastor, and he may be in his 60s, but he still outweighs me by 50 pounds and practices the Israeli martial art Krav Magra in his spare time. Curiously, I've never actually felt the libidinous effects of eggnog unless you count tired and gassy, but maybe I'm just doing it wrong. We drive on in silence. No eggnog, no conversation. By the fourth store, we have our system down. I jog to the back of the store, the dairy aisle, and Dave hits up the locals for information. Oh, your cousin got some yesterday near city center. You have a friend who works in a grocery store in Omaha. Would you give him a call? Still no luck. By the sixth store, spirits are low. I try again. You know, the article also said George Washington made up an eggnog recipe himself, that it included uh, brandy, rum, rye whiskey, and sherry, <laughs> and the recipe tells the maker to include frequent tastings. This gets me a... No kidding. Yes. That's pretty good. If only we could find the eggnog. Oh, that stores seven and eight pass us by with no nog in sight. Dave looks particularly glum and turns us towards home, so I keep my mouth shut. A mile out, we pass a family fair grocery, the sign flickering. You think they'd have any, I say? Let's give it a shot. Dave pulls into the parking lot. I jog to the back of the store, and there, like the child in the manger, wedged between the buttermilk and heavy cream, are three cartons of eggnog. Crumpled, dirty, but whole and unopened. I swear there's a halo around it. I feel like the shepherds that night so many years ago. I think I hear angels. I want to bask in this moment a little longer, but a family of four is edging too close to the cartons, so I shove past, grab all three cartons, and run. I get to the car. Three cartons, I say. I can't believe it. Good work. Good work! Good work! <laughs> I'm a little overwhelmed. Giddy from the success and the moment, I can't really explain what happens next. I crack open a carton in the car. I don't know what I'm thinking. I'm hoping we can toast, you know, but there are no cups or anything in the car. So I take the carton, raise it to my lips, and take a long pull. Cheers, I say, and I offer him the carton. My father-in-law gives me a long, hard look, looks at the carton mouth where my lips just were, then looks back at me, and he takes the carton and drinks. Cheers.
He wipes his mouth on his sleeve. We return home. The cookies are just coming out of the oven. Rachel shoots me this look that says, Wow, that took longer than I expected, but you arrived at the perfect time. Dave and I congratulate each other in the traditional way that men do, by not making eye contact and saying nothing. But I know, we're heroes. Tired and a little gassy, but heroes nonetheless. And now, the airing of Grievances! A Festivus tradition! Listen, not everything about the holidays is mistletoe and yule logs. Some things about the holidays are just the worst, and it can be healthy to vent about it. For our first airing of grievances... I've got one. How about ten worst things heard at the obligatory extended family holiday gathering? Ten! ten. Am I still single, Aunt Karen? Are you still divorced? Nine! Nine. I'm not sure if this will fit you. Looks like you put on weight. Eight. Thanks for the present. This is so nice. And I didn't even know we were doing gifts this year. Seven. Thanks for having us for dinner. I brought uh, the paper plates. Six. So, who'd you vote for? Five. Time for pictures. Four. So you guys at the theater are basically on vacation now, huh? Three. Well, we've only got 17 hours until Santa comes. Just enough time to watch It's a Wonderful Life. Two. We should do this at your place next year. One. I was cutting my toenails while I was making this. Let's just say I could only find seven of them. Because oh. <laughs> oh. it's a joke. Because I didn't really do that. I'm not gross. I thought we were being funny. Christmas Day 2012. It won't be Christmas without Graham, I thought as I sat in the back seat of a car on Christmas Day 2012. The year thus far had been one of the most eventful and stressful of my life. I graduated college, started grad school, and, most momentously, lost my beloved grandmother to lung cancer. Before she died, Graham made Christmas in the Andretta McLaughlin household from the time I was a baby to the year I turned 20 truly special. Every Christmas morning, I would wake up early in anticipation of the goodies downstairs, then scramble into my parents' room and bug them until they woke up. This never worked. They'd only groan that they'd be up in a bit, only to spend the next half hour in bed. Once everyone was awake, we'd all go downstairs and unwrap presents under the fully lit tree while tunes such as The Christmas Song by Nat King Cole played in the background. Our furry family members would wander around the living room, including Graham's golden retriever Oliver, who was never fat, just fluffy. And it's anyone's guess why the poor thing's legs gave out on him later in life. Despite what little money she had, Graham always made sure there would be gifts under the tree for everyone. When I was about six, I opened my gift from her to discover the one thing I truly wanted that year. Pet Dr. Barbie. And my glee was captured on a home movie which I kept re-watching years later. That night, my family would arrive in a whirl and the festivities would begin. Even with the rest of the family there, Graham would always make a point to check on me and make sure I was happy. 
If you were to ask me what I thought the spirit of Christmas was, I'd point to Graham and say, it's her. To me, she was Christmas. And her death turned my world upside down. After she died, my family, specifically the part that celebrated Christmas with us every year, cut off all contact with my parents and myself. After losing Graham and Oliver, who sadly followed his mistress a month after her death. My parents and I had to come up with something to do in lieu of an extended family celebration, which is how I wound up in a car on Christmas Day driving to the Lowe's Cinema in Wayne, New Jersey. Since I had been so conditioned to believe that Christmas was a huge family affair, I was understandably skeptical at my parents' idea that we spend the day at the movies watching the newly released film version of Les Miserables. But Christmas wasn't about going to the movies. It was about passing around the coffee and the pumpkin pie and all those other things they sing about. And yet, as I sat in a packed movie theater with my parents and heard Hugh Jackman, Anne Hathaway, and... Unfortunately, Russell Crowe singing some of my favorite tunes, I realized that I'd never been this happy before on Christmas in my life. But my happiness confused me. We were doing something we could do any ordinary day. There was nothing Christmassy about it. Why did this feel so right? After the movie, we foregoed a traditional dinner and instead enjoyed Peking Duck at Shendu on Highway 46 with Pinot Grigio, which we filled with jumbo ice cubes my mom brought in a Ziploc bag. I was happy that my mom, for whom Christmas was always a day of non-stop work, seemed to be relaxed for once. Well, my dad also seemed to be enjoying himself. I guess not having to go through the dreaded holiday tradition of dealing with the in-laws can do wonders for a person. But they weren't really happy. They couldn't be. Didn't they remember that Graham was dead and we were all alone? At home, we drank even more Pinot Grigio. Don't worry, my mom made sure we put ice in every glass. And watched a movie. But not It's a Wonderful Life or even Die Hard. We watched the concert version of, you guessed it, Lame Is. We needed to cleanse our palates after enduring Russell Crowe's singing for three ass-flattening hours. But I was still struggling with my happiness. Darn it, this is not what Christmas is supposed to be. Christmas is waiting for your extended family to come barreling through the door and invade your space. It's having your aunt promise you every year that she'll take you to the real Polar Express where they have magical hot cocoa, but... Spoiler alert, it never happens. It's trying to spend time with your mom only for her to bark, Elizabeth Gage, do you want to have dinner or not? Well, stay out of the kitchen. As she nurses a glass of Pinot Grigio, don't worry, it had ice in it. I mean, think about it. No more huge family Christmases. It's all gone, all... Gone. No more being boiled alive by the overheated living room. No more being forced to choose between wearing a cardboard stiff, ill-made plaid dress or a sweater that makes you feel like you're being eaten by little woolen worms. No more headaches from hearing all the loud voices. 
no more worrying that I said something offensive. No more being laughed at by my cousins when I tried to talk to them because I'm just a little kid, I don't know anything. No more harsh rebukes for daring to be anything other than silent and cute. <laughs> was that really what those old Christmases were like? Was I that unhappy? Now that I thought about it, the only thing that made that whole evening bearable was Graham and her warmth and love. Now that the worst part of the day was gone, Christmas seemed to regain a little bit of its magic. And my parents must have felt the same way, since every year since we've made a habit of going to the movies and getting takeout. I don't miss those old Christmases. And I no longer think that what my parents and I do is un-Christmas-like. And although the family split up, I somehow know that Graham would be okay with the choices we've made. Because Christmas can be anything as long as it makes you happy. And before she died, Graham told me she always wanted me to be happy. This year has seen another upheaval to our lives with the pandemic. Since my parents live so far away, I'm so scared that I won't be able to see them this Christmas. And if I don't, this will be the first time in my life we won't be together on Christmas Day. But even in the face of all this uncertainty, I know that my family and I can adapt and create more new traditions. As long as we have each other. Hitching Home As I muse about the holidays and the state of the world in which we find ourselves, I'm taken back to a memorable holiday season my sophomore year of college. The year was 1970, colleges were returning to normal after Kent State-inspired strikes, and the double whammy of civil rights and Vietnam strife. My roommate Dave and I had become fast friends as freshmen, sharing a bunk bed in a four-person overcrowded suite in an older building on the Brown campus. While very different people, we enjoyed each other's company and mutually discovered a passion for social justice. This led us to joining the same fraternity to assure we could live near each other for the next four years. Anyway, by sophomore year, we each took part-time jobs in a local sporting goods retail store. For Dave, this meant extra spending money. He came from a hard-scrabble, blue-collar background. Mine was of more necessity. My dad had decided that since I was going to major in theater, he was not going to continue funding my college education. But you're so smart. Why are you throwing your future away? He always said. But I digress. Back to the store. You know the kind. Women's sportswear on the main floor and men's clothing, tennis rackets, and skis in the basement. Because it was the holiday season and we were part-time sales clerks, of course we were put on the schedule to work up until the holidays. So, intrepid college kids that we were, with the post-Christmas lull facing us and having hitchhiked to Dave's home in Meriden, Connecticut for Thanksgiving, we decided to hitchhike to my home in upstate New York, a journey of 460 miles. Of course, when I told my parents this, my father launched into a lecture about the perils of hitchhiking. The journey began easily enough. A fellow student, Stan, a hockey player whose home was in Natick, Massachusetts, just up the road from Providence, and situated on the Mass Turnpike just west of Boston, agreed to give us a lift for the first leg of the journey. As it happened, on our way, it began to snow, ever so lightly. 
Our next Good Samaritan was a true Willie Lomanesque salesman, complete with suitcase samples in the back of his station wagon. He was bound for Stockbridge in western Massachusetts and was eager to converse. So, how are those co-eds now that we're past the summer of love? He said with a grin. I began to have visions of a man possessed of strange passions. However, the most dangerous moment of the journey had nothing to do with any predilections he might have been harboring. No, the snow began falling in much greater amounts. The temperature dropped precipitously and semis were skidding out doing 360s before our very eyes. You can only imagine how quickly thoughts of a homicidal maniac are driven out of your imagination when confronted with 30 and 40 foot rigs doing pirouettes that would make a figure skater jealous. Good fortune returned to us after being dropped off as we were able to snag a ride from Stockbridge all the way to Rochester, New York in an old semi, seemingly immune from doing double sal cows, pulling a 30 foot van. We arrived in Rochester at just about midnight and were gifted a ride south about 15 minutes later. The road from Rochester to my home in Hornell is a state highway, 36 by number, and not at all well-traveled late at night, and our ride only took us about halfway home. We were now well past midnight. There was nary a car passing us. We took our suitcases and backpacks and began to walk up what turned out to be a two and a half mile hill. When we reached the top, cold and damp, both from the snow and the exertion, and both in need of a rest, we spied a light on in a farmhouse. Summoning up all the courage we could muster, we knocked on the door and waited. Five minutes. Ten minutes. All the while, each of us silently wondering what we would find. Finally, an upstairs light clicked on, then the porch light, then the door creaked open. Standing in the door, shotgun in the crook of his arm, German shepherd beside him, a young farmer asked our business. Once we explained our situation, he graciously let us come in and call my parents, who were sound asleep, and lived a good half hour away. While we waited, the farmer's wife, who had also gotten up, made us hot chocolate, which Dave and I greedily slurped up. Within about 45 minutes, a car pulled into their drive and out stepped my mother, which was a huge surprise to me. I had fully expected my father to be the one to rescue us, complete with another sermon on the perils of hitchhiking. As it happened, he'd slipped getting out of bed and hurt his back, so his sermon would have to wait until after lunch, which is when we finally woke up. What followed was just what the doctor ordered. A week of rest, family cooking, sports on television, and some interfaith and intercultural learning. Dave learned what it was like to light a menorah and got his first taste of latkes and matzo ball soup. And I learned that kielbasa and Munster cheese on Ritz crackers were the appetizers of choice in Meriden. The week flew by, and as we prepared for our journey back, my father called me into the living room. I prepared myself for the worst, yet another lecture on the evils of hitchhiking. Imagine my surprise when he reached into his back pocket, removed his wallet, and handed me $150, bus fare back to Providence for both of us. You might think this odd from the man who had cut me off financially, but to me, that memorable week indeed ended with a miracle.
And now for another airing of grievances. Why are they all so negative? Because they're grievances. How about the 10 worst things about procrastinating around the holidays? 10. Rushing to wrap presents at the last minute so that it looks like the dog got them. Nine. Stopping at the gas station for gift cards because America. Eight. Last minute dollar store trips for stocking stuffers that will just get thrown away. Seven. That awkward moment when someone asks you for your Christmas cookie recipe, but you bought them at the supermarket. Six. Not checking your gift list and remembering when you arrive, your brother has three children, not two. Five. Finding the last turkey in the store on Christmas Eve, only to realize it's frozen, needs two days to thaw, and I'm an idiot. Four. You're running around with a vacuum, no pants on, the laundry's still drying, the rolls have yet to rise, the jello hasn't set, and the guests arrive in one hour. Three. You forgot to buy wine. Two. You put the turkey in your electric oven on Christmas morning, when suddenly the lights go out, and you remember that the electricity bill is sitting on your to-do pile. One. Your wife needs a present, too. Ooh. No, she doesn't. She got one last year. Yeah, what were you thinking? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she does. Can you get a gift card? Nudge, uh, nudge. I'll be right back. Welcome to Where Are They Now, Rankin Bass. We find ourselves in the waiting room of Hermes DDS, Polar Quest Dental Vision. Seated to my left is what looks to be a grizzled veteran of the Great Alaska Gold Rush. And next to him is... Well, what I can only describe as a mountain of snow-white hair with black fingernails and toenails. I excuse me, Mr. Yukon Cornelius is my name, and prospecting is my major claim to fame. What brings you to Polar Quest, may I ask? You may, and duh, obviously I have a tooth issue. Too many years on your own? Out in the wilds? You could say that. Any luck? Strike it rich? You betcha! Why else would I be here? Because of the high cost of dental care? Hang the cost! I was prospecting for peppermint and hit the mother load. Peppermint, not gold? Nope, just peppermint. And wouldn't you know it, I couldn't keep my hands off my claim. You mean? Yup, it through the whole vein. Dumbest thing I ever did. And now my chompers are killing me. Ah, and your friend? You could ask him yourself. His name is Bumble. Excuse me, Mr. Bumble? May I ask why you're here? Your tooth hurt? Which one? Why, you dang blame fool. Can't you see? He'd only got one tooth. That black one jumping out of his mouth. They'll probably have to remove it. It's nothing but slushes for you from now on, Bumble. Thank you, Brant. Next on Where Are They Now, I hope to catch up with Little Drummer Boy on a break from recording with his new group. Hey there, Little Drummer Boy, can I catch a word with you? Sure, man, what's going down? I was just curious. Why the sudden change of heart? You know, man, the same paradiddles, the same rhythms, year in, year out, they just get old. Paradiddles? Yo, man, pa-rumpa-pum-pum, pa-rumpa-pum-pum, you get me? And so... What are you looking forward to? You know, some boom, but a boom, but a boom, 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 but a 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 but a
that time of year again Wind is whipping through the air There are people stumbling Over slippery icy stairs Children making snow friends Catching snowflakes on their tongue Or going out in sub-zero temperatures Just to see if your car runs This is a wind song. Listen to things when those months seem long. So many things about the cold too strong. A secular winter song. Flurries falling slowly and trees lit up with lights. But not for a specific reason. Just because it looks so nice. Hot drinks and cozy sweaters reading books by late lamplight watching the oil burn down slowly lasting eight miraculous nights okay that was a little specific didn't mean to get off track or imply any certain holiday no this song isn't about that this is a about the cold too strong this is a winter song gathering and clinking glasses ringing in the brand new year all those faces lit up with joy and the room filled with good cheer does that count as a holiday it's really more about market time everybody Celebrate singing Auld Lang Syne Unless of course you celebrate a different new year Maybe one a little later in the winter months Gift and little red envelopes Stuffed with money and good luck Gathering loved ones around the table Hugging everyone you like Closely holding all your dear friends Stop! Hi! Maybe not the best message to be singing about right now? What do you mean? Well, we're still in the middle of a super contagious pandemic. Maybe talking about gathering with all your loved ones and holding them really close isn't a great idea. But it's the best part of winter, when the days are bitter cold, fighting off the isolation by gathering with the people you love. It really helps to... Warm the soul, warm the soul. Yeah, warm the soul, yeah, I know. But, uh, you know, people aren't going to be able to gather this year, or at least not in the same way that they have before. But winter is so long and lonesome. I know, and we're all going to have to work together, even if distanced, to get through it. Maybe community feels different right now, but... There's a sort of melancholy beauty in knowing we still have each other nearby, even through the coldest, loneliest, snowiest of winters. This is a winter song, a secular winter song. So many things about the cold too strong, still beauty in a winter song.
look so sad. <laughs> Sledding on Chalk Bluff. One Christmas many years ago, I received a genuine flexible flyer sled. I was absolutely thrilled, but also thoroughly bewildered. You see, my family had settled in a veritable swamp called Southeast Missouri. Now most geologists will tell you a swamp is not ideal for sledding. Luckily, there happened to be a beautiful ridge called Chalk Bluff just a short drive away. Sledding is not only about geology, but also meteorology. Each winter, my family would wait for the perfect combination of ice, snow, and temperature. Oh, the anticipation. I can still see my stout father intensely watching the weather forecast. Although not aerodynamic, Dad was known for his sledding speed. He was giddy when the day arrived. Mom was reading a book while I was doodling when Dad burst into the living room. I just saw the weather, he declared. Due to last week's ice storm, this week's snow flurries, and the temperature remaining below 32 degrees, I think it's time we went sledding. Ah, the precipitation cocktail was complete. I trembled with excitement. Mom ensured I was all bundled up for the excursion. No moisture was allowed to reach my flesh except my own. After donning our attire, Dad loaded the sled into the 91 Camry and we drove into that extraordinary realm called Arkansas. I watched from my window as ice-encrusted flatland morphed into a rolling winter wonderland. Once in the ridge, we searched for the perfect hill. Dad would occasionally stop the car and inspect the grade of a slope like a master surveyor. I would wait with expectation. After what seemed like eternity, he would state, we can do better. The search for the perfect hill continued. I was crestfallen. Why can't we just sled? I mumbled in the back seat. I was restless and wondered if the perfect hill was a myth concocted by the Department of Arkansas Tourism. Honey, it's getting late. Mom hinted. Subtlety was her policy. We can do better. This became Dad's mantra. Well, that hill looked fine to me. Mom replied while glancing at a cow. Before I could agree with Mom, the Camry hit a patch of ice and was stuck. Oh, lamentation! Will I ever sled? Dad tried everything. Acceleration, acceleration, and more acceleration. Nothing worked. All right, he bellowed. Let's see if we can push it. Immediately, a cow that needed a change of scenery diverted our attention. It clambered over a fence, knocked its udders on the railing, and ambled in front of our car. As it hit the ice, its legs slipped wildly in all directions. Yet its face remained as stoic as Leonard Nimoy. Remarkably, the bovine crossed the road, scaled another fence, and bumped its udders a second time for good measure. I was envious of the cow. She knew where she was going. Without further distractions, we freed the Camry and continued our hunt for the perfect hill. But just as quickly as the quest began, it was over. Dad's perfectionism suddenly lost to his need for instant gratification. The steep highway we were driving became the perfect hill. One of us stayed below to watch out for approaching vehicles. We took turns. Dad went first to test it out. Then I was next. Finally, I could sled. I remember the thrill of lying on my belly, hands at the tiller, beginning my downhill bolt. I can still hear the runner slicing through the snow the feeling of the cold air flowing over my teary eyes. Such exhilaration made the year-long wait worth it. 
But I wanted more. Like the cow, I wanted a change of scenery, too. While Mom was sledding, I persuaded my dad to move our expedition into Chalk Bluff State Park, where we could sled on the hiking trails. Well, if you think you can handle it, son, let's go. Dad had always been an adrenaline junkie. Bungee jumping, cliff diving, snorkeling with sharks. My father had done it all. I knew he'd be game for an adventure, and sure enough, he took the bait. When Mom reached us, she looked skeptical. Are we sure it's safe? Hun, we've been sledding down a highway. We went to Chalk Bluff State Park. At the trailhead, I was the first to give it a try. I got into position and plunged into uncharted territory. Now this was sledding. You had to be skilled at the tiller to make the hairpin turns. Once you went down one hill, you had enough momentum to make it up the next. The ride just kept going. It was like a roller coaster. After rounding a corner, I realized I made a grave miscalculation. The trail had stairs. I yanked the tiller to the right before reaching the first step and headed into the woods. I zigzagged downward, dodging trees as bits of ice-encrusted undergrowth ripped me in the face. I thought my turbulent descent was unending, but an oak tree had another idea. Shaken, soaked, and sore from the crash, I picked up the sled, trudged up the slope, and headed back on the trail. My mind was racing. If my parents found out about my accident, I'd never sled again. For sledders everywhere, I must hide my misfortune. After a somber march, I reached my parents at the trailhead. Mom looked worried. Dad looked eager. I looked awkward. Hey, buddy, how was it? Fine, I answered. I was determined to keep my secret. Mom immediately knew something was amiss and deftly decided to defuse the situation. How about some hot chocolate? I was surprised she wasn't drilling me for more information. Maybe the hot chocolate was a ruse to lull me into a false sense of security. Was Mom secretly a student of Scharf's method of interrogation? I didn't care. That sounds nice, I replied. But I didn't get a turn. Mom shot Dad a look. My father could sometimes act like a second child. It gave Mom a headache, and it gave me a brother. We loaded the sled and headed into civilization. The family decided to have hot chocolate in the only restaurant in town, a rundown drive-in called Dog and Suds. We sat in an orange Formica booth next to an icy window and laughed about the day's escapades. Eventually, the hot chocolate arrived. I took a sip. It felt like the best hot chocolate I ever had. Looking back, I believe it had less to do with the quality of the beverage and more with the reality that sledding equaled family time. All three of us, as different as we are, were simply together. In that instant, I was truly happy. That's when it happened. Amid the intoxicating cocoa and retelling our misadventures, I unwittingly raised the ante. And I ran into a tree, I laughed. You did what? Thus ended my sledding on the trails of Chalk Bluff. Mothers and Daughters It's Christmas night, 2015. I'm at home in Flowery Branch, Georgia, visiting my family, exactly where I want to be for the holidays. Except, at this moment, I'm not where I want to be. I'm hiding in my bedroom closet. Crouched beneath my high school letterman jacket and family photo albums, I sit, thinking, 
I've ruined Christmas. Okay, this is something that I've started to notice as an adult when I'm home visiting my parents. A regression to childhood. When I'm there, I'm not in charge. They're in charge. That Christmas night, hiding in my bedroom closet, I know this. How did I get here? Earlier that evening, as I was getting ready for bed, I decided it was time to do something about the development on my upper lip. I was looking more and more like a 13-year-old boy by the minute. What can I say? I'm of Germanic heritage. So, out comes my jar of Sally Hansen's eyebrow, face, and lip wax, and into the microwave it goes. The instructed heating time for this small plastic jar is 90 seconds on high for a 1200-watt microwave. So confident am I in my ability to put hot wax on my face and rip it off that I don't read those instructions because I put it in for eight minutes. Now, this was not my first offense with this microwave. When we moved into the house in 2003, I was popping a bag of popcorn and quickly learned the difference between the microwave from our old house, an early 1980s model, and this brand new microwave. Smoke filled the house, and to this day, its little walls are still stained a faint yellow tinge. Well, I forgot about that incident. And out from the microwave came my jar of Sally Hansen's eyebrow, face, and lip wax, and onto the floor it went. I just stood there like a dummy, or a squirrel between a semi-truck and safety. I could feel Night on Bald Mountain began to thrum in every cell of my body. And then my mom came in. A little anecdote about my mom in relation to our house. When I was 18 years old and accidentally knocked over a lamp whilst dancing around our living room, she yelled at me for a long time and then concluded with, this is why you're not responsible enough to go away to college. You get the idea. So she comes into the kitchen and People show anger in different ways. Arguably, the scariest type of anger in my book is where you don't scream and yell, but you get very, very quiet. And you over-enunciate every word that comes out of your mouth because what you are saying is very important and felt. That's what happened. My mom took in the scene, got very quiet and said, I don't know what happened, but you had better find a way to get this off the floor or else. She then removed herself from the room, not to be seen again until morning. <laughs> it wasn't even an argument. It was like an episode of I Dream of Jeannie. You know, where her smoke starts to come out of the bottle, but then for whatever reason, she changes her mind and the smoke just starts to go right back into the bottle again. Like, nope, not today. Then my sister came home. She and her husband had been out visiting his side of the family. She opened the door to see my dad and I on our hands and knees with credit cards chiseling away like little kitchen archeologists. I looked up at her like a deer in headlights and we had the following conversation with just our eyes. Don't ask, I have done something stupid. I see this, where's mom? Away, is dad mad? It's anyone's guess. So I should just quietly go to my room? Yes, please be gone! Eventually, all the wax came off the floor. No traces left behind, thank God. 
When I was a kid and had done something dumb, I'd write my mom these little apology notes and leave them in her bedroom for her to find. Sometimes a whole evening would pass before she'd read them. A lot of quiet in between time. But we'd always make up. This morning, after Christmas night, she came into my room, looked at me with a long, hard stare, the stare of someone who has been a public school teacher for 40 years, and then started laughing. She thought the whole thing was absurd. She'd come into the kitchen, not even knowing I was in there, saw wax all over the floor and me looking like a complete spaz. Once, as a kid, I had to go to the ER because I got a Barbie earring stuck in my ear canal. So spilling hot wax all over the floor was very on-brand for me. I'll always be their child. No matter what, my mom says. And now that I'm in my 30s, I've noticed that I'm kind of becoming my mom. When I have a sudden outburst at home with my fiancé, everything's dirty, let's clean all the things immediately. She's a part of me there. When I tell people to take their shoes off before coming into our house, she's there. When I feel blah and I know that going for a run will make me feel mentally and physically better, <laughs> that's her again. But it's more than just that. When I think about all of our other similarities, I keep coming back to this image. It's a picture taken by my dad. The picture is of my mom, myself, and my sister. It was taken when I was about seven years old and my sister nine. We're standing on a sand dune in the Outer Banks. We look tiny in comparison to the giant dune we're standing on, and the way it's cropped, it looks like we could be in the middle of the Sahara Desert. You can tell it was a windy day because our clothes are blowing in the wind and our hair is whipping around our faces. My mom's in the lead, hands shielding her eyes from the sun, her two tiny daughters following behind her. And to me, this picture says it all. This, this is my mom. A strong, smart, unflinching person who has guided both of her daughters into the unknown of growing up. Done so, of course, with the partnership of my father. All the good parts about me, my kindness, determination, toughness, and thoughtfulness, I learned those from her. This holiday season may be a little challenging for folks, so for now, let's take comfort in our memories, the funny, the not so funny, and know that, like all things in life, this too shall pass. That's something my mom always says, this too shall pass. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Another airing of grievances. Ten holiday sequels that never made the cut. Ten. Ten. It's a Wonderful Life 2, Potter's Revenge. George Bailey is committed to an asylum after he tells everyone he knows about seeing angels and time traveling. Nine. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, glow up. Rudolph has a sexual awakening and starts a secret relationship with Comet against Santa's wishes. Eight! Frosty's Wrath. Frosty returns 40 years later to hunt down and kill the children who let him melt in that greenhouse. Seven! 
Jingle all the way to an adult Jamie relives his late father's trauma as he hunts for the newest tech for his daughter. But it's just him online shopping. Six. Six. A Christmas story. Two. It's pretty much the same thing. An adult Ralphie repeats the mistakes his father had made. He realizes life is a cycle of good and bad. Five. How the Grinch needed a lawyer. The mayor of Whoville isn't moved by the Grinch's display of selflessness and charges him with 463 counts of breaking and entering. Little Lucy must find the magical lawyer to save her new friend. Four. Die Hard Five. Ho, ho, hold on. After Santa falls out of the sleigh, John McClane is the jolly old elf. Come to the North Pole. We'll have some laughs. Three. Home Alone Three. Kevin McAllister relives his childhood trauma when the now agoraphobic adult is the victim of a home invasion. Two! Planes, trains, and automobiles, too. Thank God for Expedia. John Candy and Steve Martin don't want a repeat of their last adventure. It's a pretty boring sequel where they just text each other from separate means of transportation. One! The Polar Express 2 Amtrak Adventure. With none of the joy and all of the delays, the crumbling infrastructure of America has its chance to shine, as Santa must use Amtrak after his personal train is derailed. But how long will Christmas be delayed? It's not really a question of if. It's Amtrak. Christmas in July. Welcome back to Where Are They Now, Rankin Bass. We take you now live to Dancing with the Stars. This has been an incredible season, but two contestants have been so cool as they heat up the dance floor. Let's see how the couple is doing. Hello, how are you, Heat Miser? Swell. I'm just getting warmed up. And how about your dance partner, Snow Miser? How are you feeling tonight? I'm just dandy. Thanks for asking. Staying nice and cool. Tell me, you two were once bitter rivals. How did you brothers become dancing partners? Well, Mother Nature got to us. She signed us up for dance classes. Thought it might be good for our relationship. At first, we didn't like the idea. But soon, we realized it was our passion. And what song will be accompanying your dance tonight? Fire and Ice by Pat Benatar! And now it's Lizzie here on the streets of Minneapolis where we find Charlie. Charlie is homeless. This is Charlie's story. One Christmas, I was happy. I had left the island of lost toys. But now I'm more lost than ever. I've lost my home. <laughs> Did the bank foreclose on it? No, I just woke up and it was gone. Can you tell us a little about your previous home? It was square and it had a lid. It was a box. Yes. You were living in a box. Yes. So you've always been homeless. No, I had a box. I was Charlie in the box. But you're living in a box right now. This isn't a box. This is a Chinese takeout carton. This isn't my box. Uh-huh. Was your box made out of cardboard? No. Wood. Purple with diamonds on the outside. Diamonds? Now I see why someone would steal it. No, not real diamonds. It was a pattern on the sides of the box. Can you help me? Well, we can try to replace your home. Oh, could you? 
Oh, oh, I'd be ever so grateful. Three weeks later, we moved Charlie into a beautiful tiny house. It's so spacious. Epic chances. February 12th. Did you know there are 4,828 miles from Bresno, Slovakia to Preston, Minnesota? I didn't either. I got curious one night and looked it up. I met Andrew online in December. We just started talking and never stopped. He lives there. And while I didn't think anything would come of it, here we are. I've been in North Carolina for almost a week. My grandmother isn't doing too well. It's strange. As I've begun to realize the mortality of my own parents, their aches and pains, the constant need to put on their glasses when I show them something on my phone, these are only underlined in my grandparents. Life is short. They get tired early sometimes, and the house is completely quiet by 9.30 p.m. It's there in my tiny office-slash-guest room, surrounded by books and piles of papers. I sit on the pull-out sofa bed and talk to Andrew. The pain the metal bar places on my back is nothing compared to the wit, the humor, and the joy I find in our conversations. Surrounded by ailing loved ones, I find a peace I haven't known with him. I've only seen his face in a few photos he's sent, but I stare at them. Sometimes for a long time. The deep brown eyes hold joy, but also pain. Pain that I sense is somehow similar to mine. He's sarcastic, irreverent, and so funny. Most of all, he's kind in so many different ways. He's so open-hearted and always willing to talk about anything. That's probably what I like most. I tell him I'm nervous to fly home. It's my first time flying alone, but he tells me he'll talk with me the whole way back. I might take him up on that. March 22nd. My world has changed forever. Tonight, just before Andrew went to bed, I made him laugh. He said, that's it. I think I'm in love with you. Silence. This is crazy. We've never even met in person. When I graduated from undergrad, my mentor gave me a small notebook. On the cover, it says, Take Epic Chances. I've kept it close, and have jotted down words of wisdom I've gathered from the many rehearsal rooms I've been a part of. But I've kept that phrase close to my heart ever since. <sighs> this was an epic chance. It was scary, rather bizarre, and utterly... right. And I had to take it. I love you too, I replied. Like, really, really love you. Holy wow. <laughs> How can I sleep? Uh, we decide we have a long time to figure out the logistics, what's wrong or what won't work. But for now, it's bliss. For now, it's right. We're in love. And we're 4,828 miles apart. But tonight, he's right beside me. March 28th, quarantine, day two. 
The joy I felt just a few short days ago is now replaced by a deep, aching dread. Last week, I watched our theater apprentices cry and console each other at the news their show had been canceled. What will happen to us? What will happen to the Commonweal? I work from home, doing what I can from my laptop at the kitchen table and Andrew in my ear. I am moody, irritable, but he takes it in stride. One day at a time is our motto. Boy, what an order. May 26th. I sit on the sofa in my apartment and on a YouTube live stream watch footage from the riots. Andrew calls. Is this near you? Are you alright? 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. I sit and watch. I stay up all night. Is it always like this in America, he asks, and I honestly don't know how to answer. The riots we're watching on TV? No. The reasons they're happening in the first place... My mind swirls. Why? He asks plainly. For the first time, I am confronted with the realities of being an American, with calling this place home by someone who doesn't live here. Just watch. October 6th. Andrew and I fight. I go on long walks with coworkers, particularly the ones in relationships, and ask for insight. They share their experiences and wish us well. I absorb them, thankful, and try to piece together a path forward. I realize more and more that love isn't a perfect state of being. It's a choice you make every single day. To realize you're both imperfect people, that you both can be a burden, but deciding to walk through life together anyway. We decided we wanted to meet to see if we have a real future. He's hesitant. We both are. But we both agree we can't date on Snapchat forever. Strangely, I tell him that even if things don't work out, I'm thankful for this. At least we'll know and we can move on, I say with faint confidence. We talk about the trip basically every day. I even bought a countdown. I change the little numbers every night before he goes to sleep. A fumbling, meticulous ritual. His tickets are booked. He'll be here for Christmas. We'll take another epic chance and then start our own long, long walk. December 1st. If you can help it, never book international flights from a weird third-party site based in Romania. You'll get a good deal, sure, but there's a chance my boyfriend may be traveling in the cargo hold. Hopefully they throw him some pretzels or something. He's not too picky. The tickets have been a nightmare. The travel, all 21 hours of it, is sure to be exhausting. But, just like he was there for me almost a year ago, I'll be there for him. I'll talk to him the whole way. And I think he'll take me up on it. December 15th. Depending on when you are listening to this, this final entry has already passed or is yet to be. I'll stand in the Minneapolis St. Paul International Airport, or the Rochester International Airport, or O'Hare when I have to drive to Chicago, wherever the Romanian booking agency sends him waiting. 
My heart will be beating a million miles an hour, my urge to pee will be immense, and my stomach will be showing off the new acrobatic tricks it learned since all this started last March. But I will wait. I will breathe. I'm here for a reason. Then I'll see him coming. He will round the corner, and for the first time, we will lock eyes. The man who's been living in a box in the palm of my hand will be real. A year ago, I didn't even know he existed, yet we've already been through so much. And while we will have a long journey ahead with disagreements, failures, assumptions, and disappointments, we also will have so much more. So many laughs, adventures, memories, and love. <laughs> Kinda like 2020. We've proven the cynics wrong, if just for now. We will just see where our story goes next. One day at a time. Take epic chances. A Christmas Family Tradition In the early 90s, I did freelance work for Eastern Onion Singing Telegrams in the Twin Cities. It was like going on tour with a repertoire of about a dozen one-man shows. I played characters such as Hector Holotahula, who wore a floppy beach hat, groucho glasses, coconut shell bra, and a grass skirt, and Mr. Wonderful in white tie, tux, tails, and top hat. I took my shows to offices, restaurants, and living rooms all over the metro area. Though this taught me tons about connecting with an audience, after a couple of years I stopped accepting these gigs, with one exception. The chance to take Santa Claus to individual homes on Christmas Eve. I researched Santa's mythic history to find a way that I, as a thin-boned ectomorph, could confidently inhabit the jolly old elf. Since I'd be visiting families in their homes, I wanted a Santa who was active, fun, slightly mischievous, and the spirit of giving personified. And when I first took him out in 1991, I had prepared plenty of material to take to five homes ending in North Oaks. For that last gig of the night, I stayed for a 40-minute show instead of the 20 minutes they had ordered treating them for more than they had expected, including songs, a night-before-Christmas recitation, and a bonus story I found at the library. It made an impression, because the day after Christmas, the family's mother, Louise, called the company office to reserve my Santa specifically for Christmas Eve the following year. Thus began my part in their holiday traditions. And in 2007... Santa journeyed to their home for his 17th annual Christmas Eve visit, one that I especially remember now as a stressful 2020 draws to a close. So on December 24, 2007, I left Linda's apartment in Owatonna at 4.15 to travel 186 miles and make three stops, see 40 people of all ages, and collect a decent batch of tips. But as always, North Oaks was my main destination. Over the years, I had seen the family's oldest children grow from toddlers to college students, and the youngest cousin in this extended family, Brittany, was now a 14-year-old ninth-grade student. 
So this particular visit started lower key than usual. With the kids all past the believing stage, the magic seemed missing. Only Charlie, the Scottish Terrier, had a child's unhindered enthusiasm as he tore into his gift of chewable toys wrapped in poinsettia-patterned paper. To enliven things, I turned to the usual holiday favorites, jingle bells, up on a housetop, and, the night before Christmas, but the normal enthused reaction was subdued. Something felt off, but I didn't want to dwell on it. I tried to remain open to what this evening might have in store. Then the inevitable photo posing began. Louise and the adults shepherded various groupings to gather around me. During it all, young teen Brittany sat silent in the background with two other cousins on the third step of the curving staircase. That didn't surprise me. She was always one of the shy ones. I remembered the first time she met Santa as a toddler. That night, the adults kept bringing her to sit on his lap, and she had resisted. I encouraged her to stay away if she wanted, because I knew children below age three are often scared if they can't see a human face. And I sure didn't have a face. Between my beard and my wig, only my cheekbones and eyes were not smothered in white hair. But during that night, she had gradually warmed to her visitor, inching ever closer. Finally, as I had stood up to ho-ho-ho my way goodbye, she scampered to Santa, gave him a quick hug, and ran back to the arms of a family adult. It had been a cute exclamation point on that year's visit. So, this year, she again hovered in the background as the adults worked out camera angles. But suddenly, without a sound, she rose from her place, ignoring the hubbub around her. She padded down blue carpeted steps in her brown velvet dress and marched straight up to Santa. Do you know any stories about Rudolph? she asked. From my chair, my face was right at her eye level, and she peered directly at me. This was not the question of a non-believer trying to stump a Santa impersonator. She was asking Santa's advice about a serious matter. Stories about Rudolph, Santa mused as she kept her gaze fixed upon me. She wanted some kind of answer. Let's wait until the pictures are finished, I said, buying some time. That satisfied her for the moment, and she slid back to her place as silently as she had come. But the challenge had been made. Santa had better come up with a Rudolph story, or he would be persona non grata in the eyes of one young teen. As the cameras kept recording, I considered winging a story, but rejected that idea. Wasn't there some story I could adapt to fit Rudolph? Then it came to me. That very first year I brought Santa here, I had told that bonus children's story I had found at the library about a young fawn in the woods coming upon a log home in a clearing and seeing a shimmering tree in the window. How he ran excitedly to tell his mother about it, only to find out it was something called a Christmas tree, and only humans make them. How he asked if they could get one in the forest and received a non-committal answer. How he went to sleep sadly as the snow fell and then woke up to see a wondrous white tree in the woods with silver icicles glistening in the sun. How the birds decorated it with twigs and berries and the squirrels heaped nuts around the trunk. As Santa told the story now directly to Brittany, 
this time with a very young Rudolph as the main character. Everyone, including each adult, was quiet. And as I reached the end, a new inspiration floated into place. Oh, Molly, said Rudolph, staring in wonder. We finally have a Christmas tree. Yes, that's right, said his mother. And you know what? I bet with that glowing nose of yours, you'll one day lead others to lots of Christmas trees. Brittany listened to every word. When it was over, she nodded. The story had met her needs. Despite the slow start to this visit, the magic had finally found the jolly old elf. Thank God I was in a place to simply let it happen. Two years later, I sent Louise a Christmas card with my regrets that I'd have to stop making Santa visits. I enclosed a version of this story, noting it was one of my favorite memories. Soon she phoned the Commonweal box office to find me. She had just finished tearfully reading my card and thanked me for celebrating with them all those years. And, she explained, when I told Brittany that story, it was the year her parents had divorced. She had found some comfort with Rudolph. We're all looking for comfort this year, and stories are one place to find it. Thank you for joining us for Live from the Commonweal, A Driftless Christmas. On behalf of the entire company, I hope that you are all... Hal. What? We can't just end like that. Well, how else do we do it? That's been the question all year, hasn't it? How does this end? When will this end? How do we make theater when we can't have people here? How do we do things differently than we've ever done before? What do you do when the world turns upside down? How do we create? How do we stay safe? How do we laugh? How do we love? I don't know. Doesn't sound like any of us know. Maybe that's okay. As long as we keep trying. Hoping. As long as we share stories and reach out to others for connection. I miss our patrons so much. How will this end? It's up to us. All of us, and you too, listening at home. The pandemic will end. The commonweal doesn't have to. It may feel like we're all just drifting. But the world keeps on turning. We're still right here.
shields were thing, but the new year is coming, and hope can be coming. So raise up your voices and sing. Driftless Christmas, following a driftless year. It hasn't been good for business, but we're hoping to still find some cheer. A driftless Christmas, the end of a driftless year. Since gatherings to ambitious, let's just end it right here. We're sorry that we can't be near, but we are still here.